Well, about a fortnight ago, the uh, four people who'd been accused of criminal damage for kind of throwing the uh, statue of Edward Colston into the uh, water in Bristol were acquitted by a jury. They were found uh, not guilty, despite um, the evidence of what they'd done. Needless to say, there were some commentators who therefore said that justice had not been done. After all, hadn't they evidently destroyed this statue and committed the offence? Well, of course, those who had brought the statue down equally claimed that they had been doing justice. That was their defence. It was unjust that there was a statue to Edward Colston, who had been a notorious slave trader, and so they'd done justice in bringing this statue down. Well, my point is not to take sides. Whichever um, you think is right, both of those perspectives reveal a deep-seated human desire for justice. We want to see justice done. And we become angry when we think justice has not been done. We hate it when we see the wicked getting away with it. And when we personally suffer injustice, we want there to be retribution. We want to be uh, uh, avenged for the wrong that we have suffered. And this human longing for justice is the central issue of this psalm, Psalm 94. And this psalm reminds us that the, the, the issue of justice is more of a problem for God's people than it is for atheists. If you're an atheist and you see injustice, in a sense, you can kind of explain that as part of an imperfect world. After all, what more would you expect? Life is just about the conflict of those who are powerful and justice didn't happen because you weren't powerful enough to get it. That's just the way it is. But if you're one of God's people and you believe what the Bible says, that there is a sovereign God who's all-powerful, in control of all things, and who is a God of justice, then why on earth do the wicked get away with it? And most especially, why do the wicked get away with persecuting God's own people? In our church uh, prayer meetings back at my home church in Christchurch Market Harborough, They'll be actually meeting right now as we uh, uh, kind of are here. Um, each week, we've been going through the Open Doors watch list. And we've been praying in our church prayer meeting each week for one of the top 50 countries in which Christians are persecuted. We've heard appalling stories of how our brothers and sisters in Christ are treated around the world. It begs the question, why is God allowing the wicked to get away with it? Why is the government in North Korea able to put Christians into labor camps and murder them? Why are the Islamists in northern Nigeria able to kill Christians with seeming um, impunity? We pray week by week that they will get justice. But it raises the question, can God really be trusted? Well, the book of Psalms was collected to encourage God's people and the book was brought together particularly at the time of the exile or just after the exile of God's people. And it was a time in which um, our God's people were being oppressed by the nations, when the nations seemed to be triumphant. And really, the uh, Psalms asked the question, can you trust God's covenant promises? Uh, can you trust his faithfulness? Is he really um, committed to his people? Will he deliver them from their enemies? 
and do justice. In Psalm 94, this psalm comes uh, in the middle of what's called book four of the psalms. The psalms is divided up into um, five books, each of which has a theme, but together they tell a story. I think we often think that the book of Psalms is kind of rather like a now that's what I call religious music, a sort of a kind of a rather random collection of the kind of the best hits of Israel. But actually the Psalms is carefully organized to tell a story. They tell the story of how God's people um, move from being um, oppressed and rejected to being gathered to worship God in his kingdom. But one speaks of um, the king of God's people as the suffering servant who looks to God for rescue. Book two speaks about the people as a whole as the suffering servant who look to God for rescue. Book three explains the tragedy of the exile and why God's people are oppressed by the nations. Book four, which is where Psalm 94 fits in, is about God's sovereign rule. He is the king and he does reign. And then book five speaks of the promise of restoration. So here, this book, um, Psalm, comes in the middle of book four. Book, um, Psalm 93, that comes immediately before it, makes the great claim, the Lord reigns. That's the fundamental theological conviction of the book of Psalms. He reigns and he is more powerful than all of the enemies of God's people. And Psalm 94 follows on from that. Because God is the God who reigns, because he's the one who's more powerful than um, all their enemies, he will do justice for his people. The great hope of this psalm is that the wicked will not get away with it. That was a tremendous encouragement to God's people as they continued to endure the exile and oppression. And I think it's just as important and just as relevant for us as Christians today. Because we as God's people find ourselves in the same position as um, these Israelites. The New Testament tells us that as the church, the people of God, we are still in exile. We are uh, marginalized uh, in uh, the world. Persecution and opposition are normal for God's people. And that inevitably raises the question, is it worth serving God? Can he be trusted? Or maybe this is a much more personal issue for you. You might be concerned about the cause of persecuted Christians, say, around the world, but maybe it's a much more personal issue for you. Perhaps you've experienced, sadly and tragically, injustice in your own life. Maybe you've been mistreated, abused, let down. Maybe you've been defrauded, betrayed, cheated. Maybe you've been mocked or discriminated against because you're a Christian. Maybe you've not been offered a job or you've been refused a promotion. And maybe it's even another Christian who's exploited or oppressed you. And you haven't got justice. And you wonder, can God be trusted? Maybe in the words of this psalm, you even feel that your feet are slipping. That your faith is undermined because you have no prospect of getting justice. Well, if that's you, this psalm is for you. Because the encouragement of this psalm is that God will do justice. The wicked won't get away with it. We can trust his promises. They've been fulfilled by Jesus. And he will keep them.
So as we look to this psalm, I want to look through this psalm. It falls into six sections. I want to look briefly at the six sections of the psalm and how they point us to Jesus. And then at the end, draw three big applications from this psalm for us as God's people. So we're going to look through the psalm, then draw three big applications. So firstly, verses 1 to 3 of the psalm. What we see in verses uh, 1 to 3 is the psalmist's prayer. Here in the, uh, uh, the beginning of the psalm, the psalmist is praying. And his prayer is simply this, do justice quickly. Do justice quickly. In these verses, the psalmist sets out the theme of his psalm. And he's crying out to God to do justice to his people or for his people. And it may seem like a complaint. Uh, it may seem like a complaint because the psalmist seems to be saying God is not acting. But actually, it's a prayer of faith. Because these verses show that the psalmist both assumes and believes that God can and will act. So in verse 1, he cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the God by his covenant name. Right at the very beginning, he is claiming to be one of God's people who believes his promises. He's pleading God's very character and commitments uh, to him. And he begins with his theological confession. Verse 1, the Lord is a God who avenges. Now, we might be um, slightly perturbed by that language. For us, the idea of vengeance or revenge sounds like kind of a mafia boss who's kind of uh, been offended in some way. And so he uh, kind of ups it and kind of takes uh, a revenge unworthily. Revenge might seem to us uh, a kind of something unworthy of God. But what the psalmist, when he talks about God avenging, is God doing justice. We can see that clearly from verse 2, don't we? God is not just taking personal vengeance. Verse 2, what the psalmist is asking him to do is pay back to the proud what they deserve. Verse 3, it's the wicked um, who seem to be getting away with it. This is about God doing uh, justice. And the heart of the prayer is the prayer that God will act. So in verse 1, he calls God to shine forth. In verse 2, he calls God to rise up. He's saying, God, do something. Take action. In verse 3, what seems like his complaint is, is how long it's taken God to act. God has not acted quickly enough from his perspective. Why haven't you done something yet? But even that implies faith that God will judge the wicked. It's just it hasn't come as quickly as he's wanted it. So here's the psalmist crying out to God to do justice quickly. And the psalmist is confident that God will answer. He will do uh, justice. It's a question of when, not if. And in fact, the psalm ends with that same confidence on the part of the psalmist. As in verse 23, he declares he will repay them for their sins. He will do the very thing that the psalmist is uh, praying for. I think there's a helpful reminder to us here as Christians as as to what prayer is in the Bible. It seems to me that all the way through the Bible, prayer is primarily asking God to keep his promises. It's asking God to do what he's promised to do. I think so often we fall into thinking that prayer is somehow um, uh, uh, kind of changing God's mind. Or prayer is somehow bringing to God information that he doesn't know in case he's kind of missed it. 
And so we're kind of telling God, 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 we think this is really what you ought to do. Haven't you noticed that this is what you ought to do? No, prayer in the Bible is prayer like this. Crying out and calling on God to keep his promises. To do the very things that he's promised uh, to do. And we need to be those who pray and keep praying that God will do justice. That he will shine forth, that he will rise up. And of course, this psalm actually points us to Jesus. Here, the psalmist is praying that God would do justice. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus, the one who is risen and raised and ruled, ruling and enthroned at the Father's right hand, is interceding with his Father on behalf of his people. The Lord Jesus is going to return, but he tells us in his word that even he doesn't know when he's going to return. Only the Father knows that. Jesus is the one who is interceding on behalf of his people that justice will be done. The psalmist's prayer, do justice quickly. Then in verses 4 to 7, we see the evildoer's confidence. The evildoer's confidence. And they think they'll get away with it. What we see in verses 4 to 7 is that those who are oppressing God's people think that they can act with impunity. That's why they're described in verse 2 as the proud. And in verse 4, they boast of what they're doing. They crush God's people. They oppress his inheritance. That's the land of Israel. They kill the vulnerable, the widow, the foreigner, the fatherless, the very people, the vulnerable people about whom God is most concerned. And they are confident that they're going to get away with it. They mock God, verse 7, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob takes no notice. Now, these people here are probably the foreign nations that are oppressing Israel. And they're basically saying, where is the God of Israel? He's not protecting his people. He's not going to hold us to account. After all, we've invaded them. We've conquered them. Our gods are stronger than him. He's not going to do anything. We can do what we want. They think they'll get away with it, and they mock God. And to some extent, in their experience, they seem at the moment to get away with it. And this is how people who don't know God think. They don't believe that there is a God in heaven who's sovereign, who's in control, who's going to hold them to account. And so they think they'll just get away with it. And so they boast in their evil doing. And again, this is fulfilled in Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the one who's been enthroned as king, but the world mocks him. Those who don't believe in Jesus um, uh, sort of think he won't do anything. They don't need to pay him any attention. He's not going to hold them to account. For others, they take a slightly different view. They assume that Jesus is so loving, uh, he never will hold anybody to account for their wrongdoing. His job is simply to forgive, so we don't have to worry about it. We can do what we want. Either way, we don't have to pay any attention to Jesus. And they think Christians and those who trust in Jesus are foolish because they're oppressing them and they think they'll get away with it. Kim on young and the persecutors think exactly like that. We can oppress God's people and we think we'll get away with it. 
And I think it's those boasts of the arrogant and the fact that often God seems not to be doing anything that makes, us hard, makes it hard for us to trust his promises. Perhaps we fear that they're right. Well, that brings us to um, verses 8 to 11. And in verses 8 to 11, we have the psalmist's warning. And since he's told us um, how the wicked think, but then he turns to the people and he gives them a warning. And the warning is this, don't be foolish like the wicked. Don't be foolish like the wicked. These verses are probably um, directed towards the people of God who are tempted to abandon uh, faith in him. Notice verse 8, this is to the senseless ones amongst the people. It seems that the uh, people the um, psalmist has in view here are those um, who are in danger of giving up hope and becoming like the wicked. Their kind of thinking is if you can't beat them, join them. The wicked are prospering. They seem to be getting away with it. What's the point of living for God? Let's just become like them. And the message of the psalmist to them is don't be so foolish. Don't be so foolish. These are wicked ones who are boasting, who think they're going to get away with, are not wise, they're stupid. They're fools, they're senseless. And you'd be a fool to be like them because verses 9 and 10, the Lord does, or verses 10 and 11, the Lord does hear and see. The wicked don't get away with it. It's not that God doesn't know. He's the creator. And if he's the creator, if he's the creator of the ear, if he's the creator of the eye, then of course um, he sees. He does discipline and punish, verse 10. And he knows human plans. There is nothing hidden uh, from him. He is the one who's completely in control. He can't be deceived. You can't hide your wrongdoing from him. He's the sovereign God. So the message to God's people is don't be taken in. Don't become like the wicked. Don't be so foolish as to think you can get away with it and so join in with them. God is the sovereign God. Keep trusting in him. But these verses are perhaps particularly significant for somebody who's not yet a Christian. Maybe that might be you. Maybe it might be people that you know at work, at the school gate, in the club that you belong to. They don't live um, for God. And maybe they think they can simply go on living how they want. Maybe you think, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an oppressor in that way. Maybe not, but all of us use people in order to get what we want. We're prepared to trample on them if necessary. We don't love them as we love um, ourselves. Well, if you assume that you can do that and you'll get away with it because no one knows, here's the warning. God sees, God hears, and God knows. Your plans are futile. You can't defeat God. There is a day of judgment coming. It's foolish to um, ignore that. Uh, We live in a a world, don't we, in which we're kind of um, increasingly surrounded by CCTV. I remember the days before CCTV, and you could get away with quite a lot in those days because there was nobody watching. Now, do anything, 
and you're probably caught by a CCTV camera. Well, kind of God is like a permanent, complete, everywhere CCTV camera. It sees absolutely everything that everybody ever does and what they even think of doing. We shouldn't think we can get away with it. And of course, this is fulfilled for us even more clearly in Jesus, isn't it? We should uh, know even more clearly that we can't get away with it because Jesus is the one who's risen and reigning He is the one who is all-seeing and all-knowing. Actually, so much of Jesus' ministry parallels what the psalmist does here. So much of Jesus' ministry was a warning of the coming judgment and a message to people of the need to get ready because you won't get away with it. That was at the heart of so many of his parables. That was at the heart of his message, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He was calling people to live in the light of the coming judgment, not to think that they could get away with what they've done. Well, then verses uh, 12 to uh, 15. 12 to 15 moves on to speak of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. And the point here is that he will not reject his people. In contrast to the wicked who mock God, and think that uh, God won't do anything, and to God's people whose faith might be failing because they wonder whether God will do anything, the psalmist reminds them that God is faithful and he will not reject his people. So the way of blessing is to trust the Lord. So verse 12 is an encouragement to those who trust the Lord that he disciplines and teaches his people. The suffering that they're experiencing, the opposition that they're experiencing, is not a sign that God has failed them or let them down. What the psalmist is saying here is that God has a positive purpose in what they're experiencing. He's disciplining them, he's training them, he's teaching them. It's not that kind of God can't stop the wicked, but he has a purpose at this present time in allowing the wicked to prosper. We may not know what that is. But that's what the psalmist here assures um, God's people is the case. We find the same message reiterated in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. The New Testament, um, uh, Hebrews written to Christians who are suffering persecution and opposition. The author says to them, God is treating you like sons because God disciplines his sons. He trains them for righteousness. And hardship is that training. The New Testament sees the opposition and the problems that we face, the injustice that we suffer. It's being like a school in which we're taught perseverance, character and hope. God hasn't failed. And verse 13, the psalmist says it won't last forever. It won't last forever. Even as you're experiencing this, God God will um, grant relief and will sustain you. And then eventually a pit pit will be dug for the wicked and they'll be brought down to judgment. God is working out his purpose. He will sustain you and the wicked will be judged. So verses 14 and 15, God will not reject his people. His covenant promises stand firm despite appearances. He will never forsake his inheritance. 
The fact that the wicked are currently oppressing the inheritance, as we saw in verse 5, doesn't mean that God has abandoned it. There will be a righteous judgment. Those who've remained faithful, upright in heart, will be vindicated. God's faithfulness. He will not reject his people. And again, that's seen for us, isn't it, even more clearly in its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. God has shown that he's faithful to his people. Hundreds of years after this psalm was written, God's people were still waiting. As we remembered at the time of uh, kind of Christmas and we remembered the Christmas story, they were still oppressed by foreign nations, ruled by a puppet king Herod under the Roman ruler Caesar Augustus. But into that situation, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, who came to deliver from the wicked and who will return in judgment. God is faithful. He's not rejected his people. He keeps his covenant promises. And so in verses 16 to 19, we have the psalmist's testimony. The psalmist's testimony, what's kind of true in this kind of theology that God hasn't forsaken his people is also true for the psalmist personally. And the psalmist can give his testimony that the Lord saved him from death. The psalmist is encouraging the people to have faith in the Lord and to have faith in him because he's faithful to his covenant promises. He's praying that God will raise someone up to act against the wicked. And then the psalmist shares his personal testimony. The Lord has saved him from death. He speaks of uh, how um, his uh, foot was uh, slipping, how he was in danger of losing uh, faith uh, and trust. But the Lord saved him from death. The Lord gave him help and supported him. He consoled him in his anxiety and brought him joy. See, the psalmist is able to say, my personal experience confirms God's character. I've experienced God keep his covenant and he has saved me. And it's because of his unfailing love, his settled covenant commitment. And the psalmist's testimony again here, I think, points us ultimately to Jesus and to his experience. Jesus is the one who um, experienced the ultimate oppression and injustice when he was put to death on the cross. Uh, Unlike the psalmist, he wasn't just close to death, but he died. He dwelt in the silence of death. In, In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he prayed, as he looked to the cross, it was as if his feet had been slipping as he uh, cried to his father to take the cup away. But ultimately, he kept trusting in his father and trusting in his promises, trusting in his unfailing love, and he was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus declares to us that God is faithful to his promises and he saves from death. Jesus' testimony is greater than the psalmist's testimony, as the Lord saved him from death. 
His anxiety in the garden turned into the joy of the resurrection. And the resurrection proves to us that God keeps his promises and is faithful to those who keep faith uh, in him. He is the one who is raised up, uh, who will deal with the wicked on our behalf. And so verses 20 to 23, in the final um, uh, kind of verse of the psalm, we hear the psalmist's confidence. The psalmist's confidence. This is a psalm that ends with confident faith that God will do justice for his people. The psalmist's confidence is that God is a refuge for the righteous and he will repay the wicked. The cry of verses 1 to 3 will be answered. And that confidence is grounded in who God is, his covenant and his character, which has been confirmed in the psalmist's experience. Yes, the wicked will oppress the righteous, God's people. They will condemn them to death, even though they're innocent, but they will not succeed and get away with it. Verse 22 declares, but the Lord. And in verse 22, the psalmist declares that the Lord is a refuge for the righteous. He uses a common picture from the Psalms of a rock or a fortress. Kind of think of a castle and the keep of a castle kind of on a hill in the middle of the castle. The safe place that's impregnable. And the psalmist says that that is what the Lord is to his people. He is a rock, a fortress in which you can take refuge. So that you can be protected from the wicked and spared the coming judgment. And in contrast, in verse 23, the wicked will be repaid. God will uh, deal with them and repay them justly for their sins. They will be destroyed. Not an arbitrary vengeance, but a justice for their wickedness, for their sins. They'll get what they deserve. And again, this confidence is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. It's Jesus who is the rock, the fortress of refuge for his people. The place of absolute safety where we are protected. And Jesus will return to destroy the wicked and bring about ultimate judgment. So we've looked through this psalm. We've seen what the uh, psalmist uh, says. And how it finds fulfillment uh, in the Lord Jesus. How it points us ahead to him. So finally, how does it apply to us? What are the big applications that we can draw from this psalm for ourselves? Well, three things. Firstly, as we reflect on this psalm, we can see that we can be sure that the wicked won't get away with it. We can be sure that the wicked won't get away with it. We live in a world, don't we, where so often the wicked seem to escape justice. And we might ask the question, where is God? For some people, that's a reason why they don't believe in him. uh, And they think they might as well be like the wicked. Well, this psalm assures us the wicked won't get away with it. God is sovereign. He sees, he knows, he hears, he'll judge. Uh, Jesus has arisen. He's been appointed the judge. He's returning to judge. We might cry, how long? 
and long for Jesus to come back more quickly, but we can be certain that he will come. And that ought to be a tremendous comfort and encouragement to us as Christians. To know that the wicked won't get away with it and there will be a judgment. Do you remember what Paul wrote to the Thessalonian Christians who were experiencing severe persecution? 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6. Paul wrote, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. That's Psalm 94, applied to Christians. The wicked won't get away with it. Does that not comfort you and encourage you? It should comfort and encourage God's persecuted people wherever they are. But if you're not a Christian, then can I say it should also undermine any false confidence or complacency you have. Any idea that you think that you can do what you want and get away with it and will not be held accountable by God. He hears, he sees, he will judge. So secondly, second big application for us is you should take refuge in Jesus before he comes in judgment. You should take refuge in Jesus before he comes in judgment. Our greatest need is to take refuge in him. Because this psalm tells us that um, uh, uh, ultimately when he comes to judge, there are only two outcomes. Either you'll be safe because he's your refuge, or you'll be repaid and destroyed because he's not. This psalm reminds us that if we're honest, our real problem is that we know that we deserve God's judgment. We're not innocent. We're not righteous. We have mocked him. We've oppressed others. Well, the great news is that God offers us refuge. Because Jesus is the one who fulfills this psalm. This psalm not only shows us that Jesus is the one who's been raised to new life, saved from death, uh, so that he can be our refuge. This psalm also shows us that Jesus is the one who has taken our sin and judgment on himself. This psalm speaks of how the wicked will be destroyed, how they will be judged. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus when he died on the cross. He was the one who was um, uh, only one who was ever truly innocent. He was the only one who uh, God saw, heard and knew had committed no sin. And yet he willingly went to the cross and on the cross bore the judgment of God on himself. And he did that precisely so that he could be the refuge for all who turn to him. He is the rock, the place of safety, because for those who trust in him, he's taken the judgment that they deserve, so that in him they can be declared righteous and look forward to his return with confidence, knowing that they have nothing to fear, because he is their refuge. You should take refuge in Jesus before he comes in judgment. And if you're a Christian and you have trusted in Jesus, that should bring you real confidence and assurance. You have nothing to fear as you look ahead to the day of judgment because Jesus has already paid the penalty for your sins in full. And if you're not yet a Christian, 
It means you can turn to Jesus and receive complete forgiveness and escape the judgment to come no matter what you've done, no matter how wicked you might have been. Jesus has died so that you can be forgiven. And you can come to him as the refuge that you need. You should take refuge in Jesus before he comes in judgment. And then lastly and thirdly, you can leave vengeance to the Lord because he will do justice. How do we live as God's people if we've taken refuge in Jesus? Well, the great hope that comes from this psalm means that we don't have to take justice into our own hands. We don't have to um, uh, seek vengeance against those who wrong us and oppress us. We don't have to put everything right now because we know that God will do justice in the end. And it's wonderfully liberating to be able to leave vengeance to the Lord. We might cry, how long, O Lord? And we need to remember that God has purpose in delaying his judgment. He's disciplining us and training us for righteousness. We need to remember that this is the day of salvation. Um, uh, the reason that judgment is delayed is so that others can come and uh, take refuge in Christ and be spared that judgment. But it means that as we think about injustice, we can trust that God will do justice in the end. And that's, of course, exactly what Jesus did. Remember 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, which speaks of um, how Jesus faced the cross. And he is supremely our example. Peter writes, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Paul says, leave vengeance.